following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. power of the word is the power of creation and destruction. We know from experience that kind and benevolent words can have a restorative healing effect. We can inspire others with our language, but words of sarcasm morbidity, violence, and hatred can bring about the worst qualities within a person. The unconsciousness and the infraconsciousness of the human being. Vulgar words, swearing, cursing, foul language, these always convey the degenerated influence of the ego. And of course, these always have palpable effects on our environment. It's been well documented by Dr. Masuru Emoto how the vibration of speech and sound They affect the formation of crystals in water. They also proved in this study how negative words produce chaos, disorganized, cluttered formations in the crystals. Whereas loving words, classical music, positive vibrations, These engender very complex and harmonious geometric structures, crystallizations. This proves to us that language affects matter. It is a vibration of energy, a vibration of force, which can be used by the consciousness or the ego. 
The consciousness knows how to use language, the power of the verb, to promote awakening, to elevate our level of being and the level of being of others. But why is this? Why is speech, sound, vibration, energy essential to Gnosis? It's because language, like the being, is an expression of energy, of force, of being. The being is a vibration, an energy or force that is very elevated, extremely refined and eternal. It is a spiritual force that can reflect within us if we know how to use our speech, the verb, with precision. If our level of being is low, our words will reflect that. Because words are the expression of thought. As the Buddha Shakyamuni taught us in his Dhammapada, mind precedes phenomena. We become what we think. And also we become what we say. We can't take back a word of criticism, of sarcasm, of malevolence. Because there is a particular magnification of force when we speak from the ego or from the soul. Because that is how we direct energy. As Samael and Vior spoke and explained, wherever we direct attention, we expend creative energy. So building off our former lecture on the energy of awakening, we're exploring the spiritual power of sound how we utilize all those energies we are conserving as we mapped out on the tree of life in order to work with particular practices in our tradition, especially mantra. Because mantra works with vibration, with energy, as we'll explain. And these exercises help to raise our level of being, the vibration of our psyche. Because when we speak harmful words, we feed desire, we empower it, we condition ourselves. And therefore, our words will reflect our level of being with their energetic qualities, the states and qualities of desire, conditioning, mind, ego, which always produce pain. This is very evident when we reflect on our life. How we argued when we should have been silent. But also, when we were silent and refused to speak. To act virtuously. Because when you save power, creative energy, you have a reservoir by which to act. And so the next step is how to know how to use that energy in a spiritual way, in a conscious way. If our level of being is high, if we use our energies to speak words of compassion, 
integrity in all relationships, then we will originate new situations, beneficial circumstances, novel opportunities. When we show compassion and speak words of cognizance to others, we mend, we heal, we strengthen our connection to God, the being. But of course, we have to be careful with our speech, how we use the verb, because speech creates. It can originate heavenly circumstances, or it can originate diabolic situations in which we incriminate ourselves before the divine law, the laws of the being. And this is why in every religion, the power of sound, of language, of recitation is essential without exception. The power of sound is spiritual. But if we take that energy with hatred and channel it through our wrath, we produce tremendous pain. Which is why every tradition has its ethical conduct. They teach how to use that energy through practices so as to benefit the essence. Hinduism has japa, yoga, which is mantra recitation, repeating sacred sounds through prayer. Many Buddhist meditations, sacred sounds or mantras are used. In the Jewish synagogues, the rabbis read from the Torah, the great scriptures of Moses. The early Christians or the Gnostics have always had secretively many exercises of contemplation that utilize the verb. And in Islam, they recite the Quran with melody, with beauty, with strength. Sound is a powerful medium by which we can invoke the being, the presence of the divine. The Christians always refer to this as Christ, the word, the verb which we can harmonize in ourselves if we live ethically, if we pray, if we visualize, if we imagine. So if you're familiar with the former lectures in this course, we spoke a lot about imagination. We talked a lot about energy and how all of these integrate because our ethics, our codes of conduct, our ways of being are empowered with the sexual force. Our visualization is strengthened through the power of energy. And it is through sound by which we amplify, we magnify our work. Therefore, if our foundation is very secure, if our ethics are strong, if we're working on our mind, then mantras will fuel our practice tremendously. But if we don't act ethically if we don't know how to behave, how to speak with others in a proper way, to not act with desire. We can really create a lot of problems because now we have more energy saved by which to act. And if the ego takes that energy, we fortify ourselves as a demon. 
Our kind words, however, can transform an aggressor into a companion. But evil words can transform a friend into a fiend, an enemy. This is why Christ said, Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the drought. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Book of Matthew chapter 15, verses 17 to 20. So it doesn't matter how clean and upright we seem on the outside, but if our inner sepulcher is filled with dead bones, we will speak with rottenness in every state of our life, unless we change. So, upright speech is a foundation of Buddhism, especially, but every tradition as well. Every religion. And even the, even the word religion, from Latin relegare, means to reunite. We do not reunite people when we speak with the intention to harm, or if we gossip, or lie, or manipulate. Sadly, in spiritual movements, this is very common. It's because people forget ethics. This is why the Sufis taught, we must always guard ourselves, our breaths, against God Most High. Because that breath is powerful. That vibration is powerful. Especially if we're working with the sexual force. So by protecting our speech, we protect our quality of mind. Every meditative tradition offers mantras to help protect our mind. From the Sanskrit, man, to think. Or the word manas, meaning mind. And try, to protect, to free. Mantra literally means mind protection, to free the mind through sacred sounds. Speech, logos, the word, originates from our psychological state, our intention. And we know in many religions, they teach mantras to train the mind, to reach equilibrium, stability. Sound and vibration can harmonize our level of being. And it can help calm the mind, control negative thoughts, and restrain the ego. So, vibration and sound is a means of strengthening our concentration, our essence, so that it can be focused on one thing without being distracted. And any time we identify with an ego, with anger, with pride, 
with resentment, with fear. And we speak from that state in a crisis, in an ordeal. We create a lot of disharmony in our psyche. So going back to the study by Dr. Emoto, literally, water crystals form based off of positive words or negative words. And we know that in science, the human body is at least 80% water. So if we're speaking harmful things or gibberish, disharmonious language, sarcastic expressions, or manipulative dialogue, we're literally charging our body with that force. And therefore, even in our biology, we become very chaotic. People who identify with anger and resentment, with pride, with hatred, exhaust themselves. They find that they can't sleep well. They don't rest well. They can't pay attention because they've wasted all their energy. They've crystallized and channeled their energy that they've been saving, whether from sleeping at hours and waking up with fresh vitality, through desire. So this is why curb our tongue is the beginning. Learn to control our speech. But also we work with mantras. We need to empower our consciousness, our essence, especially to control the ego when we are tempted. And these mantras help us to vibrate with divinity, as we can see hinted at in this image of a person sitting in a yogic posture, surrounded by a lotus and the seven lights of the chakras, the energetic wheels of the spinal medulla within the energetic body are illuminated. The primary benefit of mantra is that it curtails the ego so that we don't act with negativity because everything begins inside, psychologically. And if we're not paying attention throughout our day, we simply react to life. We don't perceive the causes of suffering and how they manifest in this present moment. As we explained in the energy of awakening, we need fuel to drive our car. And likewise, the internal bodies need energy in order to operate effectively. The engine of the internal bodies, that which circulates the force of divinity, is the chakras, as we're going to talk about. These energetic wheels or centers, vortices of power, which can channel all of our psychic, biological, energetic, and spiritual force with balance. This is so we acquire equanimity of mind. We stabilize the mind when the waters are calm and when the energies are flowing peacefully. So the mind is serene when the ego is absent so that awakening can occur and we can experience the being. We have to remember that 
to work effectively with mantra, we have to be calm. So we spoke about nine stages of meditative concentration and how on the path, on Buddhist murals leading up this winding path of a monk chasing an elephant, it takes less and less effort once reaching the higher stages of concentration because real concentration is effortless in the highest degrees. But of course, in the beginning, we struggle. Our mind, the elephant, is out of control. And therefore, with the hook of vigilance and the rope of mindfulness, we chase after that elephant. And if you look and are familiar with this Tibetan Buddhist image, there is a blazing fire around the curves of the path, which which refers to the energy we need the effort we need in the beginning to stabilize ourselves, to concentrate. Therefore, mantra is especially effective for that, whether vocal or in silence. And so we have innumerable mantras in our tradition. Every religion has its sacred sounds, its words, its mantras, its prayers. Each mantra or syllable represents a force in nature, principles of divinity, which we seek to embody, to express. So first, the word originated all. First comes sound, and then the calligraphy, the geometry, the scripted patterns of language, which we find in every religion, just as every religion has its Bible, These Bibles are written in different languages, which all carry and embody profound principles. While an infinitude of different mantras exist within the languages across the globe, they all originate from the being. The being, God is a multiple perfect unity. Divinity is one perfect light expressed through millions of masters. So we have to remember that each master is an angel, a Buddha, a God, a prophet, a luminary, one who embodies the verb, the word. This principle is beautifully expressed in the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven in his fourth movement of that symphony, the choral movement, in which you hear many voices, many masters, but one harmony and one melody, which is Christ. This sound is the perfect joy of being, the happiness of liberation from the mind. It is the fire of creativity, the fire of genius, that inspires all the great musicians and classical composers, the great artists of humanity. And if you're interested in learning more about how this is the case, you can study our lectures on chicagonosis.org, the course called The Secret Teachings of Opera. Salma Island Vior in The Spiritual Power of Sound states, there is a universal language of life spoken only by angels 
archangels, seraphim, etc. When the sacred fire blooms in our fertile lips made verb, the word becomes flesh in us. All the mantras known among the occultists are just syllables, letters, in isolated words of the language of the light. What does it mean that the sacred fire blooms on our fertile lips made verb? Fertility has to do with sexuality, creativity. When we're taking that energy and raising it up our spine through exercises of transmutation so that that fire manifests in our words, in our speech. And all the mantras of the world, of the Gnostic tradition, help us to articulate that light. Because mantras are specific. They operate based on laws in the cosmos, of which the angels are manifest, of which they know and express with perfection. So ancient languages carry tremendous power. Especially because they are more accurate. Expressions and depictions, articulations of divine principles. So we study and apply different mantras from all faiths. Because these mantras represent distinct qualities, forces we need to incarnate, to embody. Which is why Samanvir stated in the spiritual power of sound when he quotes the book of John. The gods create with the power of the word because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Different languages contain and retain spiritual power. This is why the great religions of the world have lasted for so long. I believe even Dion Fortune wrote in one of her books how the Catholic Church has subsisted through millennia because of the Latin Mass. Latin is a mantric language like Hebrew, Chinese, Tibetan, Arabic, Sanskrit, Hebrew. These languages, in their genesis, in their provision to humanity, carry tremendous force. Each letter of the Hebrew or Sanskrit, Tibetan, Latin, Arabic alphabets represent principles and forces which we can self-realize in ourselves. They represent laws of nature. And that's why these languages channel energy. Because they operate as a conduit of receiving divine aid. And so the Latin Mass, as the center of the Catholic Church, helped to invoke divine force. The problem becomes is that many of the people who attend Mass, they feel the power and the beauty of that tradition. But because they don't circulate the energies in themselves, they don't awaken. They may feel an inquietude in the heart and an appreciation for the symbolism of the Mass. And they feel the power of the Latin, yet they cannot circulate and incarnate that force because they're not working with 
their own energies. They are not awakening. This is why Dion Fortune and even Samuel and Vior wrote that ritual is like dynamite. Ritual and mantra as symbolic expressions and prayers using the mantric languages of the world are a means of invoking divinity. And so the word is very powerful. These sacred evocations were always utilized with respect because with the word comes great consequences. How we speak to others, but also how we speak to God and how we manifest the being in ourselves is critical. But that depends on profound purity of speech. Profound respect of the verb. Because as I said, our language and our energies empower either the soul or the devil. The consciousness or the mind. It depends. So when we work with certain practices like rituals or prayers, mantras, we have to be very cautious. Always returning to our ethics. Because with evocation, invocation, prayer, expressing sacred sounds, we are working with a very powerful force. And if we act unethically, instead of using the dynamite to break through the caverns of our own habits, we instead self-detonate and commit spiritual suicide. This is why ethics is critical. So numerous spiritual schools always have their focus in different languages. In the written word. Each character within these different sacred alphabets again represent energy, which we seek to mathematically use with precision, with scientific results, with verification. And when you understand the universal Christic principle, how that Christic divine energy, which is not a person, is in every religion. You understand how each religion depicts the divine, the principles of God, and how they relate to other religions. Which is why Dion Fortune wrote in the training and work of an initiate, All esoteric systems use a symbolic method of notation in their teachings. Each of the symbols employed indicates a spiritual potency, and the ideas associated with them indicate its method or function. Their interrelation represents the interaction of these forces. If we have the key to one symbol system, we can readily equate it with all the others, for fundamentally, they are the same. So the principles are universal, but they are particularized particularized through each language of this cosmic alphabet. So many correlations exist between the Nordic languages, the runes, and their derivatives, Hebrew, Aramaic, Sanskrit, Chinese, Arabic, etc. They share their roots in the divine language, which was a language of light that Salman Vera mentions many times in his books, which was spoken by an ancient humanity on our planet, which is long forgotten, ignored.
So each letter in these alphabets represent force, potencies in nature, which we seek to access through mantra, through prayer. And in this graphic we find the zodiac on the left with its consolatory and stellar script, its glyphs mapped in the stars, the laws of the universe. We have in the middle the Sanskrit Aum with its eternal script circulating outward towards creation because the mantra Aum the perfection and creation of divinity represents how all the universes emerge from that source. And each letter of Sanskrit here, circling out, can represent the cosmos, the universe, in all of its multifarious and intricate laws, its balance, its harmony. And then we have some magic sigils on the right, which relate to the runes, the Nordic yoga, as we'll explain. So mantras have different purposes. The Sanskrit Om works with the heart, our innermost Buddha, the spirit, the being. The Arabic Hu can relate with the breath and the spirit as well. And the Sufis chant Allah Hu Allah. And many times they pronounce the Shahidah, the declaration of faith in Islam. There is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. Or in Arabic, La ilaha illa Allah, Muhammadun Rasul Allah. That declaration of faith is also used as a mantra amongst the Sufis. To experience the heights of the tree of life, as we've explained previously. We have Inri, a Christian mantra, in Latin signifying, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Iudiarum. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews which is a fire that particularized itself within Jesus. Because Christ, Christos in Greek, means anointed one, or fire, from Christos in Greek. And in Latin, inri stands for ignis natura renovatur integra. Fire renews nature incessantly. Because the verb, speech, the verb, or creation... is the Christ, is an energy. So a competent esotericist knows the mantras and symbology of their uh, their tradition and their practices in relationship to others, such as the Tarot and astrology, which basically encompass many sciences in their depth. So we study them with patience so that we can experience their profound symbolism through practice. And in the Gnostic tradition, we always examine the original languages of the scriptures so that we can comprehend our practice. So we're spending a lot of time talking about these languages because the written word is the expression of the hidden word, the being, whom we can access when we learn the science. And while the sacred languages of the East are very profound, in the Western esoteric tradition, we emphasize Hebrew, which is the esoteric language of the West, the mystical Kabbalah. 
as Dion Fortune writes in The Training and Work of an Initiate. These cosmic symbols are further represented by the letters of a sacred language, which in the Western tradition is Hebrew. Out of these letters are formed the sacred names and words of power, which are simply algebraical formulas resuming potencies. Thus is the universe represented to the initiate, and he is able to trace the correlation between its parts and see what invisible realities are throwing their shadows upon the world of Maya illusion. So she's explaining that mantras grant us the power and energy to penetrate nature, to see it, to understand it. So in our former lecture on imagination and fantasy, we spoke a lot about imagination and supra-conscious imagination. These abilities allow us to perceive the reality behind phenomena. Likewise, mantra is the fuel. It is the engine. It is the mechanism by which we catalyze and accelerate our development. We empower our meditative discipline. So these algebraic formulas are very exact. This is an exact science. Prayers and mantras are perfect mathematics. And we know this because Hebrew, the letters and the words, have numerical value. Each character represents not only a number, but a principle. And just as the key unlocks a certain door, likewise certain mantras give us access to different regions of consciousness, which is mapped by the Kabbalah. For example, the mantra Pander can help us remain awake within the being in Keter. Many mantras exist for astral projection, such as Fa Ra On which we have to intentionally imagine and visualize Egypt, the pyramids of Giza. Om Tat Sat invokes the Ain Sof Or, the limitless light, to descend into our minds and hearts, to awaken us. It's well understood that music is mathematics. It's a science as well as an art. Primarily because musical notations are mathematical, they're precise. And it's also artistic because it expresses the artist's level of consciousness. So music and sound and art reflect the level of being of the composer. Which is why we always look to the great classical initiates, especially the great masters, because they learned how to use sound in a powerful way in a conscious way, an even supra-conscious way, like Beethoven, especially, Wagner, Mozart, Chopin, Liszt, Tchaikovsky, and many, many others. Likewise with numerology, the science of Kabbalah, the numerical values of Hebrew, those characters, always arrive at a synthesis, a prim- primal understanding of their meaning. This is in relation to the sacred arcana, which we talked about in a course called The Eternal Tarot of Alchemy and Kabbalah on chicagonosis.org. We also have mantric prayers for defense, 
internally. These are known as conjurations. Conjuration comes from conjurare, which means to swear an oath together, to invoke or summon. So when you conjure in the astral plane, an entity that you think is negative, you are asking it to swear upon divinity in the name of Christ, by the power of Christ, for the glory of Christ. Show me your allegiance. Because you're invoking divinity to come down and to show you the reality of this dream experience, to see what is objective and what isn't. We use the conjuration of the four and the conjuration of the seven especially in order to reject negative forces. And we always utilize the Hebrew names because these help us to manifest those divine potencies so we can receive their aid. We also open the door to the internal worlds through mantra so that we can witness and experience the causes of phenomena. Because everything originates internally first, and then the external world. To reiterate, from Samuel and Vior's book, Teron Kabbalah. In Kabbalah, everything is numbers and mathematics. The number is holy and infinite. In the universe, everything is measurement and weight. For the Gnostics, God is a geometrist. Mathematics are sacred. No one was admitted into the school of Pythagoras if they were not knowledgeable about mathematics, music, etc. Numbers are sacred. So the language of mathematics is Hebrew. Divinity creates through the power of the word, through mantric language, through sound, in order to give mathematical form to our consciousness. Even the Hebrew calligraphy represents geometric vibrations, forms which are pronounced or produced by sound. This is very well documented in studies of cymatics, which is the science of how sound waves Shima influence and create visual geometric patterns. Rabbi Chaim Yaakov Guggenheim, an electric optics engineer at Aircraft Industries of Israel, performed a study of sand formation through the influence of sound. After pronouncing Hebrew letters, those characters formed within the sand. This proves that language creates patterns geometric forms. In the ancient languages, such as Hebrew, represent the geometric and geospiritual manifestation of the divine. Therefore, it is important to use mantras from our tradition and not to create our own, because mantras work with laws, universal laws, cosmic laws. Creating our own mantras or sacred sounds is a New Age novelty, an invention. It has no basis in spirituality. If we wish to create a space in our interior for divinity to manifest, we must work with the universal laws, which are mathematics. Just like your key to your car won't open other cars, so too will the supreme vehicle of mantrayana 
the vehicle of sound, will not open to you unless you work with proven methods. So as we explained earlier in this course, the laconic action of the being is the perfect mathematical expression of the divine. The being requires no effort to express his perfection within nature and within the consciousness that is awakening. Mathematics and sound are principles of divinity, the being. And we can invoke and manifest that perfection through sound. Which is why Samal and Vera mentions in his book, I believe it's Revolution of the Dialectic. The laconic action of the being is the concise manifestation, the brief action, which in synthesis the real being of each one of us executes. This action is mathematical and exact like a Pythagorean table. I want you to reflect very well upon the laconic action of the being. Remember that above, within the infinite starry space, every action is the result of an equation and of an exact formula. Likewise, as a logical deduction, we must emphatically affirm that our true image, the inner cosmic human, is beyond false values. He is perfect. So every action of the being is like math. It is universal. It is perfect. It is always eternal. And to work with that mathematics of God, we work with Hebrew especially, which is why we always place special emphasis on the prayers of our tradition, because they have tremendous effect to develop serenity, insight, clarity, and especially inner strength. So the universe is governed by these laws, especially the law of seven, the law of the musical scale. This law is known by Gurdjieff as the Hepta Parepashi Nok. It is the law of organization. It is the law of the musical scale. Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Si. This musical scale, this law of seven, permeates nature. All of the universe in astrology, especially, many ancient cosmogenies, many ancient histories of humanity, always speak about the law of seven. Seven races upon the earth, or seven root races in theosophy, seven planets in alchemy, seven virtues, seven vices, seven musical notes. We use the musical scale to refer to a type of psychological and spiritual development. And we also relate it to mantra. Notice that the lower three notes, Do, Re, Mi, are mapped out and related to different types of people. We are more or less predisposed to use the intellect, the emotions, or instincts with greater intensity one more than the others. We have a psychological limp, so to speak. Some of us are more intellectual, some are more emotional, and some are very instinctual. Regardless of our disposition, we want to become balanced. 
And if you remember the prior lectures, we talked about balancing the three brains. We have to balance our mind, our heart, and our body so that they are calm, serene, in a state of dispassion and equanimity with clarity. We do that by producing a conscious shock, by working with mantra. The musical note fa relates to a fourth type of person who is balanced. Somebody who is not overly intellectual or overly emotional or always acting in life without thinking or feeling about what they do. A balanced human being understands the three brains and is driving the car well. But to get to that point, to know how to work spiritually with these three brains, with balance, we have to work with the musical note fa. To reach that point, from intellectual to the fourth type, we have mantras. We have to enter a shock in the consciousness. The note fa relates to an exercise in our tradition known as the rune fa, the Nordic yoga. One of the first practices we do when we get up in the morning is we face towards the sun in the east that is rising. We have our left hand and our right hand out, our left hand above our right, palms outward, facing the sun to receive the solar effluvia and energy of Christ, the solar logos, the energies of God, which are manifested in the sun, so that we can take that spiritual force and awaken our consciousness, which is why we pray. Marvelous forces of love, revive my sacred fires so that my consciousness will awaken. So we pronounce mantras, fa, fe, fi, fo, fu. This mantra work and this runic yoga awakens the consciousness. These energies circulate our fires from sexuality to the brain. We also receive the energies of the prana in the atmosphere so as to charge our temple, our body. So this, tr- this diagram traditionally in the fourth way school also refers to the work of alchemy, how we conserve and raise creative energy in different bodies, which in a marriage we create through a surplus of conserved sexual energy, the creative force. The note soul, relating to the sun, refers to the creation of a solar astral body. So these bodies are internal vehicles that can circulate Christ. We need these bodies if we want to become an angel, to be perfect, because divinity cannot mix with the ego. First, we create these bodies like a light bulb so that we can channel these energies clearly. And then by removing all the impurities, we reach perfection. The solar astral body is a great luxury that we need to create through alchemy. It is a solar emotional body, a miniature logos, which can channel the forces of the sun, the spiritual sun. Likewise, with a surplus of conserved and raised and elevated sexual energy, we create the solar mental body, a solar mind, which is like a beautiful chalice that contains the blood of redemption, 
the profound energies of sacrifice of Christ, our inner Christ, the intimate Christ, which is not a person, but an intelligence inside, whom Christ Jesus manifested. And likewise, with another surplus of sexual conserved energy, we create a solar causal body, the Christ will. A will that only obeys the being. Now, the important thing to remember is that we can only create these vehicles through the power of sound, through mantra within the sexual act when these notes don't deviate. It means that we have to apply constant effort and diligence so that we maintain our practice and that we never cease to work in ourselves. So this means if we want to awaken first that conscious shock below, the transition from me to fa, we have to begin working with mantra to maintain that balance in ourselves at all times. Not identifying as an intellectual, emotional, or instinctive person, but harmonizing ourselves daily. And if you work more diligently in yourself and raise those energies and conserve them, establishing your foundation in the fourth type of human being, we can begin to work at higher degrees, which is known as initiation, the creation of the solar bodies. But this scale also applies to our work. In each day, our moment-to-moment work. When you balance yourself and your three brains, we have to learn how to work with the superior emotional and superior intellectual centers. These are perfected with the creation of the solar bodies and their development. But superior emotions has to do with the sentiment of the being, which has nothing to do with sentimentalism or the emotionality of afflicted persons. Likewise, the superior mind knows how to receive intuitive understandings and messages from the superior worlds. We have to learn how to become acquainted with these centers and to create them, to develop them. So this scale also pertains to any action in life, not only to alchemy. We might fluctuate between notes. We have to initiate and sustain our work, such as through silent or vocal japa, mantra recitation, so that we can initiate that effort to maintain the note fa, which is awakened consciousness, vigilance, mindfulness, and never forget that we are doing it. Because when we fall asleep, we either identify with the intellect, with the heart, or the body. The lower three types of people, which constitutes in the Bible the Tower of Babel, gibberish. So, Gurdjieff and Ospensky also mentioned that in their fourth way school, that there is a tendency in students to begin an activity and then end it, starting something else, under the illusion that they're doing the same thing. But the reality is that we've deviated. We're not maintaining the same note. We're not raising the octave of our energies so that through their acceleration and elevation, we're awakening higher states of consciousness. So literally this vertical diagram can show us qualities of being. And if we wish to reach the goal, which is the fulfillment of our Christic will, 
we can't forget what we're doing at all times. The solar causal note relating to C, which is the height of this septenary diagram, relates to the fulfillment of our divine being's will. This is the type of effort from the soul that follows exactly the commandments of the being. This is the degree like a figure like Moses, like Jesus, like Buddha, many prophets. And so we have to learn that when we focus on one thing in life, we fulfill it with completeness. We don't necessarily forget what we're doing. We're attentive at all times. So this has to do with how attentive we are when we perform our daily life. But also can refer to alchemy. So we also study the chakras. Chakra means wheel in Sanskrit. We have to learn to awaken these vortices of energy in ourselves, which the Taoists call qi. It is the power of awakening. Different mantras activate different chakras. Seven vowels exist in nature in order to awaken the energies of the spine. So these wheels or flowers of the soul of the vital and astral body, of the internal bodies, are centers by which certain energies circulate. So in our energetic body, we have meridians, nadis, which are channels that circulate the energies of our physicality, our vitality, our emotionality, etc. And when nadis overlap in one area, they form a chakra. So there are not only just seven chakras in our inner being, but there are literally thousands because the nadis or meridians overlap in many places of our organism. The vital body penetrates the physical body to give it life. So the seven chakras are precisely the main chakras we work with because they contain the most power. And the law of seven applies here. Seven chakras, seven churches of the book of Revelation. The vowel E vibrates in the crown chakra, Sahasrara, in the third eye, Ajna, awakening polyvoyance or omniscience as well as clairvoyance in the third eye. The faculty of imagination, as we explained. The vowel eh, as an eh, awakens the chakra of the throat, vishuddha, the faculty of clairaudience, the ability to hear mystical sounds in meditation and in the astral plane. This chakra also grants us the capacity to understand the verb. So when we study a scripture, we work with vishuddha. And this mantra, eh, in order to awaken that capacity to interpret what the different Bibles and religions teach. Anahata, the vowel O in the heart, relates with intuition, the capacity to know without having to think. It also grants us the ability to astral project, because many times when the physical body goes asleep, If we're attentive, we can project ourselves in the astral plane as a soul through the chakra anahata in order to have a superior projection 
into higher states. Manipura, the vowel U, works with telepathy, the ability to receive psychic messages from other people, from other beings, and to interpret them, to understand them immediately. Svaristana, the letter M. I know in English we don't like to think of the vowel or the letter M as a vowel, but it's not a consonant according to the teachings of Gnosticism. We prolong the vowel M by closing our lips so that it vibrates at the center of the prostate or the uterus. The vowel M is prolonged like the moaning of a bull. This prostatic or uterine chakra also has capacities to awaken us in astral projection. And lastly, the chakra muladhara, the, the sacral chakra, the base of the spine, the vowel S, which is the fire of the serpent in which Kundalini is enclosed, coil three and a half times, awaiting its awakening in the perfect matrimony. So by awakening these chakras through mantra, we raise the serpentine fires of our sexual energies up two circuits of the spine, known as Ida Pingala, or Adam Eve in the Bible, Od and Od in Hebrew and Kabbalah. Pingala, the solar masculine energy, and Ida, the feminine lunar energies. So we'll give some practices we can use to awaken these forces in a harmonious way, in a balanced way. It's also important to remember that there are six parts to every mantra when we work with sound. Rishi, which means sage, saint, or master. In synthesis, every mantra is given by a master who received that mantra from a deity, a Buddha, a god. There is meter. This has to do with the rhythm, the cadence, the melody, the pronunciation of sacred sounds. Mantras can be sung, and they have many variations, even across and within the same traditions. While these are effective, the true meter of a mantra exists in the internal planes. Salmal and Vero would often correct students' pronunciation of mantras because they communicate great power, whether they're sung or they're intoned in a certain way. Even the intonation or the meter has precise principles at play that are mathematical and precise. So just like we perform a classical composition using many instruments, according to, from the attention of the composer, it's important that if we want to get the same result, we work with the same method according to the divinity that originated those mantras. Devata, divinity, God, or deity. This signifies how each mantra originates from a being, from a God, from a deity, an angel, a Buddha, a Deva. 
Each angel is invoked in relation to sacred names, sounds, terms that are utilized within the mantras they gave to the rishis, the masters. Therefore, we cannot create our own mantras because mantras invoke specific divinities with mathematical precision. These are laws of nature. We don't make up our own laws. We can believe we are separate from other people and that we can do whatever we want. And yet, there is the law of interdependence. Nothing is separate. Everything depends on other phenomena, whether internal or external, for their existence. All of us are submitted to the law of gravity. You can believe that you will fly when you jump off a cliff, but the law is the law. Unless you're an exceptional jinn master, I think that might be a problem. So people can make up mantras and they call upon energies that they don't comprehend. They harm themselves. So creating our own mantras is something like speaking gibberish, which literally could be perceived as some act of insanity. So likewise among the angels, the devas, the gods. To speak gibberish is to live within the Tower of Babel, the lower three types of people on the musical scale. We have Bija, the seeds of a mantra. These are the letters that constitute the life or genesis of mantric words. Just as the seed becomes a flower, Bija, the seed mantra, the letters of a mantra, gives flowering to words, to phrases, to sentences, to prayers. Bija mantras like Om, for many other mantras and are the seed of those verses, those prayers, etc. So from Bija emerge the life of a mantra. It empowers, it gives life to the soul. So these seed mantras are not just physical, but they constitute vibrations. They provoke ecstasies. They help us vibrate at realities outside the body in the superior regions of the tree of life. From Bija, emerges trees of wisdom and being, which are perfected meditators. Because these sounds create entire dimensions and realities. For example, Aum or Om is very memorable. It's the root of many mantras. It's therefore a Bija or a seed mantra. Because this sound correlates and articulates many derivations and elaborations. It also relates with our innermost being. And the same vibration of this mantra relates with the energies of chesed, the spirit. We also have shakti. This is energy associated with power and vibration of mantra. Mantras carry power, as we've been explaining. And any spiritual activity relates with a type of vibration, such as the runes. Different runes, different yogic postures with mantra work for different purposes, like the rune Rita for judgment, the rune Fa for solar force and transmutation, the rune Dorn for willpower, the rune Olin for transmutation as well. The vowels awaken different faculties, etc. Each energy has its specific flavor and subtlety we must explore through experimentation. And then lastly, Kilaka. 
It is the ultimate meaning or the secret significance, the key to the lock. Key, laka. We didn't find that etymology hidden there. It's like opening a door to a great mystery. It's the meaning of a mantra that you can only learn from the internal planes. For example, we have the mantra Om Masi Padme Hum. In traditional Tibetan Buddhism, they say Om Mani Padme Hum. But in the internal planes, this is how the mantra is pronounced. I remember speaking with certain initiates in the Gnostic movement in the astral plane. They came to my home and we were performing the mantra Om Masi Padme Hum. Because in Mani, we find the letter N becomes an S. And has profound symbolism, which we don't have the time to explain in detail here. But basically, with working with our vital waters, represented by the letter N, or the Hebrew Nun, we awaken the fire of the divine, the vowel S, the serpentine fire of the serpent, so that we can become like a perfect Padme, a lotus of God. So we pronounce this mantra in the astral plane. I was with a group of Gnostics internally, and this is how they perform it. And this is how we perform it too in the, our physical schools. And you can learn the hidden meanings of these mantras only through meditation, through profound reflection. Our last two slides are videos which you can access on the PDF for examples of how to perform mantra. We have the famous mantra, Klim Krishnaya. Govindaya, Gopijana, Valabaya, Swaha, which has the power of protecting ourselves from negativity. And the explanations for that mantra can be studied online with great depth, especially in a lecture called Christ Mantra in Mind Protection, which we find on GnosticTeachings.org. Likewise, we have the runic exercises, the seven vowels, the seven runes, by which we charge our body and work with energy in nature in order to fully awaken our potential. So I invite you to ask questions. Uh, thanks for that, for this wonderful uh, lecture, which I really appreciate it. Thank I, you. Uh, yeah, I have uh, three questions. So I'm going to ask you those questions one by one. Um, are you okay with that? Sounds good. All right, sir. Uh, the first one is regarding um, man mantra. Uh, does does it matter the way uh, you say that mantra? Uh, let's say uh, in Gnostic, um, we've learned we have to uh, pay attention uh, to every syllables of on of, 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 on a mantra. Uh, however, uh, if we are listening to uh, Buddhist people, they um, the way they say the mantra is like some of the words you you, you don't even hear them because they um, they go so fast in um, uh, in, uh, in uh, on those mantra. I remember uh, the other day um, the Buddhist temple, uh, the Padmasambhava, they have. Uh, they have an uh, on, online widget, and then uh, 
I was uh, uh, with them the other day, but uh, the way uh, Master Rinpoche uh, was saying the, the mantra, he started it low and then he go really, really, really fast, and then I slow down and go really, really fast. So uh, um, I'm asking you, uh, does the way we recite, obviously, the mantra, uh, does it matter? And then which way is the best? Is it the, the, the slow, uh, paying attention to every syllable, or going fast? Excellent question. The thing to remember is that when we perform a mantra, we pronounce the syllables correctly. And in the beginning, this is difficult because some mantras are very elaborate. And as we know from Tibetan Buddhism, especially at the Padmasambhava Buddhist Center, monastery, those monks have been practicing for many years, decades, a lot of them. And so when they're performing these Tibetan mantras, they do it with a type of ease that is very familiar and easy, where they can be performing and pronouncing the syllables even very quickly, which can be difficult for a non-native uh, speaker of Tibetan or practitioner, st a student of that tradition, very difficult to follow along. So that's one level to that. Now, certain mantras, according to meter, have different pacing and different speed. Some prayers can be, be performed quickly, some very short and very, or better said, very prolonged. And the only real sure way to learn that and to know with certainty today is by going into meditation and internally investigating or being fortunate enough to study under the auspices of a authentic teacher who really knows the tradition well, whether a Buddhism or even Gnosis. Because I remember even Samal and Vior would spend time correcting students, as I said, who were pronouncing mantras either too fast or too slow. And he knew the inner secret of those mantras, even the meter, how they should be sung or pronounced. And fortunately, we do have some audio clips on GnosticTeachings.org, which give us a basis for approaching certain prayers. But my answer to the first question is that my, perhaps my assumption is that these monks who are practicing for so long can perform certain mantras very quickly that are very elaborate because that's part of their training and that's something that's been passed down to them through the transmission of their teaching, through initiation. So there's some validity to that. But if you really want to know the real depths of a mantra, whether you sing it or you, you prolong it or you say it quickly, that's something that you can only really gather with absolute certainty when you're working with a mantra effectively from an authentic tradition, like Tibetan Buddhism especially, you know, may depend on the schools, but also your internal experience, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm going for the second one. Uh, is a ritual required for uh, before wearing uh, a talisman or a pentacle? Because uh, uh, can anybody just pick up uh, a talisman and then wear it, and then uh, it, it works? Good question. Now, certain prayers in our tradition are effective for charging talismans. And I would say the more intentional you are about working to charge a, like a pentagram or a, 
certain object in your home, like an altar, that the more intentional you are and prolonged with your efforts, the better. Because the more you work with certain prayers in our tradition, like Conjuration of the Four, Conjuration of the Seven, and especially the Invocation of Solomon, these help to accumulate energy at a very high degree. These are prayers which are very exceptional. They were written down by Eliphaz Levi originally and have been used in the Nostra tradition uh, by many initiates. So you don't necessarily need to have, you know, a talisman or, or, you know, some objects. It's actually beneficial if you do, especially if you are learning to channel energy and you want to get additional help like a Gnostic pentagram with the seven metals that uh, uh, personally we know some people who do sell them. I personally own one myself. And I found that in order for that talisman to really have effect, it's all dependent on many things. First off, my meditations, my quality of work upon my mind. That's really the foundation because you can wear the cross or the pentagram or the Star of David and you know many people in society wear these trinkets but because they're unethical people they don't have any effect and those talismans are only effective if we're working in ourselves to elevate our vibration the best way that you do that is being consistent especially with your prayers and practices i like to perform before i go to sleep the conjuration of the four the conjuration of the seven and the invocation of solomon and in our, in our home here we have a lot of pentagrams we keep them up in our bedroom especially. And I've noticed internally that when I've done these prayers for a prolonged period of time, in the astral plane, I've seen my pentagrams light with fire. Christic energy. And so those talismans only have power if you're working with them for a prolonged period of time. So it's not enough just to, I say, consecrate it. Like you can read in the opening of the Gnostic Bible, the Pista Sophia Unveiled. But really work with these exercises daily because then that energy, like a snowball, accumulates. It gets more magnified, as I said. Okay. Yeah, thank you. And the third and the last one, um, for a prayer to work, like you just mentioned, uh, uh, isn't that require uh, some level of faith or ability of concentration and of projection because I think uh, because um, there are many prayers like uh, you said um, the conjuration and, uh, and other kind of prayer uh, even though uh, uh, they were uh, written by some uh, very elevated uh, people but however uh, I noticed that some people might use them it works but some other people use them and it doesn't work so uh, um, my question is, uh, does that depend on your uh, ability to concentrate, to focus, or I mean, uh, what, what makes a prayer um, really effective? Great question. I'll answer that by quoting Hamlet. When King Claudius, who killed his brother, is praying over the murder he committed, and he says... My words fly up to heaven, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. If we lack concentration, then we, ha we lack 
the ability to penetrate the internal planes. And so the reason why mantra is so valuable is because as an energy exercise, it concentrates our will, helps us to develop focus so that we can deepen our prayer. Now, we can pray at whatever level we are at, and it's necessary. We are at our level of being, and we need to pray and to ask for help. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfectly concentrated to pray and to ask for assistance. But obviously, if you want to get an answer, it requires concentration. Because you have to be able to focus on that one question or mantra at the exclusion of everything else. And when you're accumulating energy, you're acquiring more force to penetrate the subconsciousness and the internal planes. So when you work with those mantras and are focused, you gradually, little by little, gain more concentration and clarity. So they go hand in hand. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So I had a question. There's a few different mantras that Samael mentions. Um, and they, you know, he says that you know, this will do you know, work all of the chakras. And when you look at the vowels for each of the chakras, they have, of course, their own vowels. But when you look at the different um, mantra combinations he's giving that says they work all the chakras, they don't always contain all of the vowels. So how does that work? That's a good question. Now, I know certain mantras are kind of like a panacea, so to speak. Kind of a catch-all phrase. Some mantras, even though they may not contain all the vowels, because of their vibration and their concentration, they do work with every chakra. Because you got to remember that not a single chakra in the body is isolated. So if you're really working with a certain mantra, you're, or chakra specifically, you're learning how to develop that muscle with particular attention. So if you consider it like an allegory of going to the gym where you work out certain muscles in the day, you might spend a lot more time on your arms or your back, depending on what your schedule is or what your needs are. The same thing with mantras. But that doesn't say that because you're working on your biceps that there aren't other muscles involved there, if you know what I mean. Because usually that type of exercise in a spiritual sense, as well as physical, you're involving all the other chakras to a degree. Now, for example, certain mantras like Om, we know is related to the heart because the vowel O relates to that center, the cardiac chakra. But Samal Anvir also mentions that the mantra Om awakens the third eye as well. So this mantra actually works not only with the heart, but with the third eye. And that's really interesting. And that's really interesting because you would think, you know, a lot of times we like to, to box in and compartmentalize things or practices. This is for this. This is for that. But really, all of these exercises are very fluidic. They're dynamic and they all relate. So mantras like Fe Un Daj is one mantra that I know works with as a guttural mantra can relate to the liver or the spleen as well, the hepatic chakras. But he states that mantras like that work upon the whole system. So there's a relationship there, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I also noticed that um, there's certain mantras that he says you can use for not only for sexual magic, but just in general as well. And then there's other ones that he doesn't mention that you can use outside of it. Yeah, and the thing is, I would rely on his instructions because he 
gives certain mantras that can be used individually and others with sexual magic. And there's a lot of subtleties and application to those exercises. And being that he is a rishi, a master, who received those exercises internally from different devas, that he's very articulate and pretty clear about what those exercises are for. So it's always best to follow the specific context of that, of that mantra. One of the other things, too, you know how, they're all, how you're supposed to kind of be visualizing the energy and focusing on the mantra. And when he talks about, you know, doing the different mantras in sexual magic, he doesn't really say what you should be, you know, focusing on or, uh, you know, really doing outside of the mantra itself. And then it kind of becomes the, okay, wh- where is my imagination supposed to be in there? Or wh- what am I supposed to be focused on while doing that mantra? Great. Yes. Great question. And a lot of students ask about that because it would seem that the instructions might be vague. You know, we get this a lot where people say, you know, how do I mantralize when I'm connected with my partner? And what should I focus on, as you said? What should I concentrate upon? And it's a dynamic thing. If you're practicing alchemy, usually the requisite is that we're already stable within our own transmutation practice. Meaning we've already been working to circulate the sexual energy as a bachelor. You know, that's the ideal situation. Not always the case for everybody, but, you know, people have their own particular situation. But traditionally in monasteries, before they degenerated, they would have the monks and the nuns separate and training for years, learning to concentrate their energies individually so that they learn how to circulate that power with mantra on their own and to do it with efficacy. And once they learned how to transmute the sexual energy as a, individual then they were given the opportunity when they deserved it to get married and now with alchemy bearing in mind our ethical conduct and our ability to restrain the sexual energy there are many things that we can focus on especially when you're connecting with your partner if you're married you want to be able to stimulate that fire and that energy through the connection but not to be so focused on the physical sensations, because it's pleasurable, it's it's blissful, it's the expression of love. And in Hebrew, the term they use is Eden, which means bliss. But not only is it a physical bliss of being united sexually with one's partner, but it's an act of love. And also it's an act of creation, because those energies become much more magnified in the couple. So the question becomes, what do you do? Well, the same procedure as you did when you were single. Circulate the energy, but now it's more challenging because you have more force and we have to learn to circulate it without lust. You know, And that's the primary factor that we have to concentrate upon. Is our lust acting in the, in the moment or are we working from a state of meditation, of real love? Because like when you're doing hums, you've got a specific visualization to be working with there for the energy. And same with the Egyptian pranayama. But then when you get into with your partner, you're kind of like, okay, well, what am I doing with the energy while I'm doing the mantra this time? In schools of Tibetan Buddhism, they, they can get very specific too. And their teachings of Tantra. When you're practicing alchemy, you, wanna, you can also visualize the energy circulating up the spine. 
You can imagine those forces, but also you focus on the mantras and the vibration they're invoking. But also, more importantly, the remembrance of God in the act. That's the most important thing. Because if we connect sexually out of ego, we're not going to get the results we want. But if we're acting from a state of equanimity and conscious love for our partner, but also for divinity, then we find that the energies circulate with greater efficacy, with greater force. You can, you can imagine the chakras when you're connected. You can also you know, feel the power of the sexual energy circulating. And the main thing is, the most important thing is, don't get identified with sensations, you know, with too much movement or too much fire, because that can lead to expulsion from Eden, as we know. But more specifically, my recommendation is concentrate on your being. What is the quality of God in that act? That's the main thread we have to hold on to. Because as soon as we forget God, we've lost our presence. And therefore, there is no creation there. Remember that in the Bible, the Ruach Elohim floats above the face of the waters in the bottomless deep. He says, let there be light, and there was light. Divinity is the one who has to perform that act. And we have to be his instrument. And learning that is not easy, which is why we meditate and we learn to separate from the ego. That's the most important thing. And then you can do other visualizations when you're connected, like the chakras or seeing the light of the energies there and circulating them with will, inward, upward, and with a lot of humility and prayer. That's the most important thing. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. I've been working on the, there was a suggested meditation um, through Glorian and um, with Aries this month. And it's, sure. it's just repeating, you know, E um, for an hour. And I was wondering, it says to do that while we're in the sign. But what about after that? Is it, how long do you know? I mean, will that, will that be effective after where Aries isn't? I'm just trying to figure out how long to do it for and when it's most effective because it's suggested to do it for an hour and that's what I've been doing every night. Sure. Yeah. Those practices of the Zodiac, for those who are not familiar, we have exercises in a book called Practical Astrology in which we perform certain mantras and prayers during certain zodiacal periods. So right now we're under the constellation of Aries. And the exercise is to sit in a chair and you can, for the first 30 minutes, you can empty your mind of all thought, relax, reach a state of equanimity. You also have other instructions relating to the mantras you perform. But the important thing to remember is that under certain signs of the zodiac, we receive particular help. Now, the mantra E for an hour is always effective. I mean, really mantralizing an hour each day is ideal. But especially when you do the mantra E under the influence of Aries, we have a type of magnification there that's very high. So there's extra help. Doesn't mean that those mantras will not be effective any other time. It just means that if you wish to receive even an additional amplifying effect of stellar zodiacal forces, you can work with that mantra that period. But all the exercises are really powerful. I mean, even for Scorpio, the exercise is to practice alchemy. 
And of course, not everyone is married, can practice that during the sign of Scorpio, but sexual alchemy is very powerful under that zodiacal influence. So we should take advantage as much as we can with our schedules and our time to work with the zodiac, especially. But doesn't mean that these exercises are useless out of their context. They may not have as much force compared to that zodiacal period, but you still can benefit a lot either way. So, so next month or when it changes, I guess in, in the middle of this month and it goes to into Taurus, would, would you say that it's, it would be good to switch then the vowel to, what is it, A? You can switch practices if you want. Yeah. So the purpose of that series of exercises is precisely to round off the soul. You know, you can begin with Aries and continue with the rest of the Zodiac throughout the year. And that's a very powerful way to charge yourself. But depending on your needs, you may need to work with certain mantras more than others. So there is an option where you can work with, you know, the Zodiacal practices according to, you know, what your needs are. And the thing to remember is that we practice in accordance with our needs, our disposition, so to speak. So to practice a mantra... Like the runes, I've been doing a bunch of different runes that I've learned and I just combine them all and I, I do the rune three times and then I pray and I do the rune three more times and I pray and I go through a series of them. Is there some kind of a sequence that I should actually be following? You know, am I supposed to be doing it seven times or, you know, is, is three times through enough? That's what, for it to be effective. Gauge your mind. Evaluate your body. Evaluate your energy. Some people need to practice seven rotations, three rotations. You know, when I would do runes, I would do for an hour or even two, three hours a day because there are times in my life where I needed that. And that may fluctuate for certain people. You know, we all have different needs. And I would not argue that there is one set way to do everything because, you know, even with the writings of Salma and Dior, there's so many exercises to do. You know, obviously we need to meditate each day. That's the important thing. Work on our ego. But how we approach meditation, how much mantra work we do, runes, sacred rites, etc. Depends on our, our own needs. So you have to learn to listen to your heart. Because your, your intuition is going to tell you, you need to do this more times or less. It depends. Up to your being. Very good. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I wanted to ask about the the different chakra. You have a picture of that. And uh, um, so if we are physically ill with a chronic disease, does it mean that some of our chakra or a particular one that's closest to that body part that we have a condition of, does that mean that particular chakra or more it's also sick? Yes, it can be more specifically. Now, if we have certain physical conditions, maybe our, we have a lung problem or a mental problem, an emotional problem, a throat problem, those sicknesses originate from the internal vehicles. So if you wish to heal those areas in your body, you can work with mantras that vibrate at that level. And that's a very great way to heal especially, but the important thing is if you're sick and you're 
struggling not to force the body so much with vocalization. Because I know a lot of people can struggle with vocalizing for an hour. You know, some people may need to do 15 minutes or even five minutes a day, whatever their abilities are. But little by little, we gain, we gain stamina and greater will. But mantras relating to the organs can be good, especially because those sicknesses don't just come out of the physical body, but they originate from the vital body, the astral body, the mental body, etc. So working with the, the EOR would be the best way to, to activate or to circulate or to heal the, the chakras then? It can be. Yeah, if you want to have a more balanced approach, if you feel like all your chakras need to be worked upon, the seven runes or the seven vowels are really great for that. But some people may feel like, I feel like my heart, for example, they could say, or my mind or my, my spine is having difficulty. Therefore, let me work on that particular point that we can identify. But if you want to work overall through the different centers, you can work with the seven runes especially. Those are exceptional. Okay, and that uh, Heidi mentioned about a mantra that will make all the chakras vibrate. Uh, is that the one that is from the Kundalini Yoga book? And I don't really know how to pronounce it. Is that, is that the one that comes to your mind? I think there's one called Fe Undaj is one. There's, uh, there's others like even Om Masi Padme Hum is one. It doesn't cope. If you pronounce it a certain way, you could encompass all seven vowels too. But even more specifically, the even just doing e e o u a m s is is powerful. Seven vowels e e o u a m s. Okay, or the Om Masi Padme Hum that you were talking about. Yes. Okay. Kind of um, on the point of the lady who just spoke as well. I'm wondering. Um, if there would be a mantra to help with this, um, you know how we can get um, virus, bacterial, different, you know, there's so many different kinds of bacteria, uh, infections in the body. Now, if we've done everything we can in the physical world to deal with that, and it's still, you know, not working, um, then of course there would be something else that's causing that. And from what I recall from reading Samael's stuff, he mentioned some things about, you know, those not necessarily being, you know, just bacteria having, you know, a life of their own. So I'm not really sure what would be going on with my aspect in that, but is there mantras for that kind of thing that you would recommend? I would recommend going in the astral plane to talk to the judge of the law, Anubis. Because we can do our best to heal ourselves doing certain mantras, you know, whether whatever condition we might have. But if we're not getting the results we want, the reality is that we might have a karma that needs to be paid. And so that's something we would have to go in meditation to ask internally. The best way to, you know, reach that state or to negotiate with the law, which, you know, we have exercises that help us to speak directly to Anubis, who is the judge of karma within the laws or tribunals of divinity in the astral plane. So if we learn to project in the astral plane, we can speak to him directly and ask, what can I do 
to overcome this illness, this sickness, this karma. Does the rune not? Which, you know, I recommend if it's a great crisis for you to work with that rune. And the way that you do it is that you have certain postures you perform with mantras and you pray to Anubis. And you state in, in order to receive this healing that I'm asking for, I will do this, this, and this, or whatever promise you make that you're going to fulfill a certain deed as payment for your requested aid. So we got to remember that the law of karma is compensation. We never receive something without having earned it. But also the, the law is not a blind law. It's a law managed by divinity. So we can ask for credit. Like you go to the credit card company, you file in for a new credit card, you're allowed to get new access to things and opportunities, but so long as you pay what you owe, you're fine. And you can balance things and learn to live more intelligently. The same thing with divinity and the same thing with karma. Now, the rune knot and the magic of the runes, especially by Selma Island Vior, has a practice by which you can negotiate your sicknesses. You know, personally, many years ago when I was very sick, I had a condition or I suffered through a condition where I was suffering tremendously. And so I was praying to Anubis, please help me to be healed of this. And in exchange for this work that I'm doing, I pray that you heal me. And after doing that rune for many months, practicing very diligently, I got the results I asked for, but only because I did what I said I would do. If I didn't do as I promised, I would have, I, I would have died. They would have taken my life because nobody can mock the law. If we owe something, we have to pay it. But it doesn't mean that we pay mechanically through pain. We pay it with, with intelligent and charitable deeds, if that makes sense. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Hello. Thanks for the lecture. Very nice. You're welcome. Um, I had a question regarding m mantras in, in reference to chakras. Sometimes when I'm doing a, a mantra, like, for example, Hamsat or Ram or Han, sometimes I, I know the, the center, where it is, or what's supposed to be happening action-wise, but sometimes I find that if, if I concentrate too hard on that particular action, that the connectivity to God is lost, and it's more about my driving for something. And so, so like, like I'll, for example, like Hamsat, I know, like, like I learned it from the standpoint of bringing the energy up with Ham and then out the heart with Sat. Sometimes, like, if, if I just wish to engage with God in it, my intention is to do that. That's the intention. But I find sometimes I'll have Ham and it echoes in my feet. I feel vibrations elsewhere. I feel a different action inside occurring. But it'll lead to sometimes that will then lead to the, the what was originally intended to go there. It was so it's like it just is it a different is it just a different form of the same thing? Like one is about more concentrating on on what you want to do, 
while the other is more exploring to get to to arrive or I don't do you have any thoughts yeah my suggestion and we get this question quite a bit my suggestion is that whatever the exercise is telling you to focus on make that your focus because part of the value of these mantras or pranayamas like hamsa is that you're not only learning to circulate energy but you're developing your concentration simultaneously and we can't do that if we're distracted so if you're sensing things in your feet and you let that become your focus that tends to be a distraction more than anything so i recommend with hamsa focus on the inhalation especially and the mantralization of hum because you have to prolong that mentally as you bring the creative energies up your spine to your head and then let it sit there for a moment feel the retained breath and the serenity of the retention of that energy in your mind and then gently exhale bring it to your heart so if you're sensing other things like you know and it happens you start to sense energy in your body but the problem becomes is our mind you know we could be sensing all these psychic phenomena and they could be fascinating and interesting but if we let that be our focus of our concentration we lose the practice as you were implying well well i think i think where where i get confused is if i, I find that if i focus on hamsa in particular because it was one of the first ones i ever learned it, as as that like that's the focus what i run into and this is something to work on is is um the, the troubles in the mind regarding that and the process of gnosis up to this point and in a way it's like but I, I like is it possible to have these other sensations but to still have the intention and focus and it to lead to that like it, it's almost like it, it bypasses the uh, a problem in order to arrive to the point but that doesn't mean the problem's been dealt with because it because it's almost like focusing on like like originally that was easy to do to just focus on the breath but but now sometimes it's almost like the focus is too hard the focus is and i don't mean hard like difficult i mean like there's too much focus does concentration ever have like what it, it must be it's an ego obviously that's something that's wanting is it better then to uh, uh, stop the mantra and address that want in meditation or because what I'm doing seems to be arriving to a point but bypassing a problem trying to bypass a block of some kind I recommend that you know obviously when you're practicing transmutation we start to sense energy we sense a lot of things we see a lot of things but there comes a point in our preliminary exercises where once the energy is circulated and we feel enough focus in our selves to really begin meditating that you can leave the pranayama alone so if you found that you have enough energy to begin concentrating yourself to work on your mind then you can stop the transmutation and focus on your concentration you know cuz real concentration is is relaxed you know it doesn't take exertion and I, we talked many times about how when you're working effectively with pranayama you're going to get it sleepy get relaxed. You know, you might be breathing more deeply, you might be yawning or, you know, inhaling more air so that your body, mind and heart calm. 
And that's the place, if you really are concentrated and relaxed enough, but focused, that you can begin meditating, you know, concentrating or reviewing your day, doing retrospection meditation. But, you know, the first steps is don't get identified with the body. You know, don't move around, don't necessarily get identified with energy. And letting that become a dichotomy of, should I pay attention to this? Should I ignore it? And that becomes a conflict. If we're really working effectively with pranayama, you'll find that all of that will dissipate. So pranayama leads into pratyahara. And pratyahara means suspension of the senses. If we're really effective with our pranayama practice, really circulating the energies well, the mind is going to stop chattering. It's going to stop thinking so much. And then the imagery of the internal worlds will start to open. So my suggestion is relax and don't overthink it so much. Don't identify with sensations because they're not reliable. That, and, it, that, and I guess that, that could even apply to identifying with when one's doing the intent, like one's doing what they intended, the correct, so to speak. That can be identified with it as well. Yeah, and that's, and that's a problem I notice is that we develop a Gnostic ego that thinks I'm, I'm doing the practice. I'm checking off my asana, I got my incense, I got this and that. And we're making a big list of this is what I'm doing right. And meanwhile, we're ignoring that we've made it mechanical. And meditation is not mechanical at all. It's very fluidic, dynamic, profound. It's always new every time. And the way that we know that we're meditating well is that we're seeing the practice in a new way each time we sit. It isn't repeated. It's always something new. Because the truth is unknowable from moment to moment. Yes, one last question. Um... I know right now for uh, Alias, there's an exercise on um, on the on uh, one um, on that book of uh, Samael when it says um, uh, for this time, for this uh, zodiacal time, we can um, like uh, there's an exercise. They said uh, use your hands, uh, get your thumb um, to seal the, the ears. Uh, the index, you know, uh, to seal the, the eyes, and then um, uh, the ring finger and uh, the middle finger to seal uh, the nose and uh, uh, the the, uh, the last one on on the mouth. But uh, yeah, uh, when I'm doing it, um, uh, I'm trying to figure out how long can we hold that because if we if we seal the nose, you know, we cannot really breathe. And so um, um, I would like to know if you are familiar with, with, with this exercise, how, how, how do you do it? Do you like um, uh, seal the nose, breathe in, hold the, hold the breath, and then um, get it out and then start again? So I would like to know if you, if you, if you used to do it, how, how you do it. As, exact, as you said, exactly how you do it. Is, uh, you might hold your breath for a little while, but then you know, don't force yourself so that you become blue in the face. But, you know, you, you want to be able to, uh, you know, close the nostrils and the mouth and all the parts of your body so that you become like a metaphorical way of saying it, like an isolation tank. You know, you think of an isolation tank as you lie in a pool of salt water in the dark and you hear no sounds, no movement. All you're doing is floating like in space and you're left with your mind. You're left with your consciousness. So then you have to learn to work with imagery. The same thing with this practice. So you want to be able to, yeah, you, you do close off your mouth and your lips and your 
your nose and your ears and your eyes and just concentrate on visualization. But, you know, you do have to take a few moments to breathe. But don't necessarily force it so much because you don't want to be holding your breath for so long or breathing in too rapidly where the focus of the practice is now just on breathing rather than the concentration and imagination. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.